The readings from Judges 11, verses 1 to 11. Jephthah the Gileadite was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead, his mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, they drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are a son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tob, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Some time later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the leaders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tob. Come, they said, be our commander, so we can fight the Ammonites. Jephthah said to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites and the Lord gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, The Lord is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over him. And he repeated all his words before the Lord in Mizpah. Thank you, Sophia. Good evening, everybody. Lovely to see you this evening. Lovely to be here and opening God's Word. Uh, we're going to read our second reading, which is chapter 11, verses 29 and 40. Please keep a Bible open after, uh, as well as we'll be skipping about a little bit. Uh, and after I read, uh, I'll pray. So verse 29 of chapter 11 of the book of Judges. Then the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated twenty towns from Orer to Minnith, as far as Abel Keramin. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was only a child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down and I am devastated. I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me as you promised. Now that the Lord has avenged you of all of your enemies, the Ammonites, but grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father and he did to her as he had vowed and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you, Lord, as, as we sit here thousands of years after it's written down, we thank you, Lord, that it's no ordinary book, that it's inspired by your Holy Spirit to equip us, to be useful to us, to teach us more of you and of your Son, Jesus. And we pray tonight, Lord, that every heart would be open, every ear would hear what you would say to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're journeying through the book of Judges, as Simon has said. Uh, I wonder how you felt. I'm going to get. I'm just going to clear the decks here. I wonder how you felt as we went through this book. Bloody story after bloody story, gory tales, stories with horrible sin, terrible oppression, graphic justice. I wonder, have you found it a little bit sickening, a little bit too much? Here's a listener's warning. It's about to get a lot worse. Uh, I wonder as you read this book, have you thought why? Why has God put this in his Bible? Why are these words inspired by God? And why has God said, look at these words, take them and learn from them? It's not because the author of this book likes gory details. It's not because it's a good narrative device to keep us reading. It's because there's a point to the depravity we see in Judges. Every story we see, every bloody detail, is because this shows us what the world is like when they turn away from God. This is human nature. This is what we're like. The violence against the weak, the battles that wipe out entire generations, sexual misbehavior, lusting after other gods, this is what the world looks like when they reject, reject the true and living God. The story of Scripture so far from Exodus is that the people have come into their promised land. They've crossed the wilderness. They've received God's law. They've been told how to live because they're God's special rescued people. They've had to fight for the land, but they've fought well. They're in it. The Lord has given it to them. And as soon as God gets them in the land, the land that he has long promised them, what do they do? They turn and they look at their pagan neighbors and they go, I I like the look of your God. I'm going to worship him instead. They marry into different cultures, into different religions, and they adopt all of these gods, and they turn away from the true God that has been so good to them, and they worship foreign gods instead. Right at the very start of the book of Judges, chapter 2, verse 10, tells us that the people forget God. The verse of the month that we just read tells us that it's important that we pass on the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord to the next generation. The story of Judges is a group of people who've forgotten to pass on the good news. They've forgotten who their God is and what their God is like. And I think Jephthah tonight shows us that he's a man who doesn't know the God he serves. What Israel truly needs in their history at this moment is a true king, a true leader, a good leader, perfect and faithful, who can lead them in worship of the Lord. A king who isn't like these increasingly evil, sinful judges, but one who knows God, loves God, and longs to lead God's people in worship. Before we get to Jephthah, I, I don't want to miss out uh, what happens after Gideon. We've got two chapters to catch up on. They're all very uh, exciting. So let's take a, a quick dash through chapters 9 and 10. Uh, last week, uh, we thought about Gideon, 
Uh, after Gideon dies, he leaves 70 sons behind. Uh, one of them, uh, a nice charming guy called Abimelech, decides he wants to be king. So he decides he's going to kill 68 of his brothers. Uh, one of his brothers survives. He goes to a place called Beer, which sounds like a good place to go after your, your family has been slaughtered. Uh, but before he goes, he issues a prophecy. Uh, Abimelech then goes and fights a war with a guy he's a minor disagreement uh, over who's the favorite guy in the city, uh, which culminates in him setting fire, uh, destroying the city, and setting fire to a tower of a thousand people, a stronghold with a thousand people trapped inside. He sets it on fire and they all die. Before one plucky woman gets killed, she drops a millstone on Abimelech and she fatally wounds him. He's an arrogant guy. He doesn't want it to be known that a woman has killed him. So he gets his armor bearer to run him through with a sword and he commits suicide. It's going well, isn't it, already? We're, we're getting there in the book of Judges. Uh, after Abimelech, we have two other judges mentioned uh, in, the, uh, in the book uh, at the start of chapter 10. Uh, one called Tula and Jeher. They're minor uh, judges. We don't know much about them. Uh, we really, all we really know is Jeher has many sons and he's many donkeys too. And after that, uh, they die and fade into obscurity. Uh, and thus, we get to Jephthah. At the start, uh, at the middle of uh, chapter uh, 10, uh, verse 6, the story of Jephthah begins. But it doesn't begin with him. It doesn't begin with his birth. It begins with this repeated phrase in the book of Judges. They expected what, what we're waiting for to happen is the people of Israel once again do what is evil in the sight of God. Again, 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 these people turn from God. They turn to their other gods. They turn to Baal, to Ashtaroth, to the gods of Syria, Sidon, Moab, Ammonites, Philistines. And the irony is, it's the people of these gods that the people of Israel turn to to worship who are the same people who end up attacking them so in this chapter, God's people turn to worship the God of the Ammonites. And who is it that oppressed them for 18 years? It's the Ammonites themselves. By worshiping false gods, Israel is basically inviting destruction upon themselves. Usual story here. God's people turn away. They worship false gods. Verse 7 of chapter 10, it says that God sells them, that God has sold them into the hands of the Ammonites. And they are oppressed for 18 years with the main area of oppression happening around the city of Gilead. In verse 10 of chapter 10, the people cry out to Yahweh to help them. They're in a bit of a sticky spot. Let's cry out to God and see if he'll help us. And they get a bit of a terrifying reply. Have a look at uh, chapter 10, verses 11 to 14. This is what God says to them when they cry out. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out like the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Scary words to hear from the mouth of, of, of the Lord, isn't it? And it's not that he has had enough of his people or he's fed up with them. It's that the Israelites are crying out to any god, Yahweh included, but also to Ashtaroth, also to Baal, if any of them will save them. 
But these words of the Lord seem to chill them to their very core. They put away their idols. They put away their worship of other gods. And they turn in repentance to the true God. So God becomes impatient with the suffering of his people. And once again, he sets out to save them. And now we finally get to Jephthah in chapter 11. And we're going to look at Jephthah in two parts. Part number one, the outcast savior. The outcast savior. Jephthah has a pretty rough start to his life. His father seems to be a man of of good standing, but his mother is a prostitute, uh, which leads his brothers, or stepbrothers in that that case, wanting him out of the family. Uh, They cut him off. They cut him out of the inheritance. They want him gone to stop bringing the family into disrepute, and they send him out, and they kick him out of the family, and Jephthah is an outcast. He flees from his home, probably quite a, a young age. He goes to a place called Tob, which sounds like a delightful place, uh, because there he finds a bunch of scoundrels. Uh, he's a leader of a bunch of thieves, possibly uh, murderers as well. He's known as a mighty warrior, and I assume you get a, a title for being a mighty warrior by killing lots of people. Uh, Jephthah basically runs the Old Testament version of the Mafia a crime syndicate at his command. He's not just the son of a prostitute. He's a battle-hardened criminal, an outcast, and a wanted man. The Ammonites, the main enemy, are still causing trouble in the land. It's been a hard 18 years of raids and incursions and pillaging and crying out to the Lord for help. The elders of Gilead need a rescue, and so they turn to the mighty warrior living up in Tob, the criminal the outcast for help. Have a look at verses 8 to 10. They come to Jephthah and they want him to fight for them. But notice that the conversation with Jephthah has a a strange parallel to the conversation that God just had with his people. So the people of Israel come to the person that they have rejected seeking help. God in chapter 10, Jephthah in chapter 11, they plead with them to help to be their warriors, and to deliver them from their enemies. Now, the person who has rejected God and Jephthah, they want the people to show humility. God wants them to trust in him alone. He wants them to forsake their other gods. Jephthah wants them to make him not only their commander, but their leader and their judge, to fully accept him as one of their own. The people respond They show their repentance, their change of heart. They accept the rejected. They turn to God and they promise God that they will serve him alone. And they promise Jephthah that he will lead them. And now the rescue begins. And just because Jephthah is a son of a prostitute, just because he's an outcast, a thief, doesn't mean that he's not uh, intelligent doesn't mean that he's a stupid person. Because instead of getting on his horse and riding into battle, he tries diplomacy first. He puts the pen before the sword. He sends a a message to the king of the Ammonites. And he just says, why are you fighting with us? Simple question, isn't it? Uh, And the Ammonites respond and they say, well, it's because you've taken our land. Uh, And Jephthah uh, writes back to them. Uh, And Tim Keller helpfully points out that Jephthah uses three types of argument. Uh, Firstly, in verses 15 to 22, he uses history. And just to make you aware, I'm going to use the word Ammonite 
uh, and the word, um, where is it, the word um, Amorite. So Ammonite and Amorite, they're two different groups of people. Jephthah sets the record straight and says, whenever we got here, we took this land uh, fair and square of the Amorites, and so it's ours. The Ammonites have never been in this land. We've won it, we've taken it in battle, and so historically, this land is ours. Secondly, he uses theology. He says, well, your God, you've got a God, Ammonites, haven't you, called Chiosh or Chemosh? You have this God, and if Chemosh give you land, would you not take it? If your God said, here's a nice bit of land, go and get it, you would take it, wouldn't you? Well, we've done the same because Yahweh has said to us, this is our land, we can have it. Sadly, there we get a, a little glimpse at a, a major theological flaw of Jephthah. Uh, it could be here uh, that he's thinking that Yahweh and Chemosh are rival gods, uh, that they each divide up the land in the Middle East to their own peoples. Uh, we know that that's wrong because the Lord God is the only true God. He's the God of all the nations. Uh, we could be a bit more generous to Jephthah and say that he's simply adopting the worldview of the Ammonites to kind of barter peace, kind of using their argument against them to get them to leave uh, Israel uh, alone. I'm a bit of a skeptic, uh, and uh, I take the, the, the first view uh, because it's hard to defend Jephthah later uh, that he really doesn't know who his God is. His knowledge of God is a little bit lacking. Uh, but third and lastly, in this little letter he sends back, uh, the last argument he uses, legal precedent. He says, well, we took the land of the Amorites. They didn't have a problem with us having They didn't fight back. They didn't send a delegation to get a back office. So basically, you have no right to do it now. Why should you have the right to demand this land office? <clears throat> pretty smart guy, pretty good tactics. Sadly, they fail. His diplomacy comes to nothing. The king of the Ammonites uh, pays no attention uh, and war breaks out. Jephthah prepares for battle. Have a, a look at chapter 11, verse 29. We read that the Spirit of the Lord came on Jephthah. That's a good indication that things are going to go Jephthah's way in the battle. That's a good idea that the Lord is going to give them uh, victory uh, for this battle, uh, and indeed he does. Uh, they have a victory over their enemy, quite a victory it seems. They, they devastate 20 uh, cities, uh, I'm sure there's quite a lot of people killed uh, as well, quite a lot of armies destroyed, and God's people have once again been rescued from their enemies for a while anyway. God has done it. He's raised up a leader. He's raised up Jephthah, and Jephthah has defeated God's enemies in the land. But the story of Jephthah continues. Uh, now we see him not as an outcast savior, but as a sinful worshiper. We skipped verse 30, and you'll probably remember it from the reading where Jephthah makes a very serious, tragic vow. Uh, he says, whatever, which also can be translated as whoever, comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice them as a burnt offering. There's almost a sense of a deal being struck, isn't there? Before he gets into battle, he's like, Lord, give me this battle and I will give you the first thing that walks out of my door, whoever or whatever it is. And you might remember from our reading that shockingly, it is his daughter that greets him. 
through the door. His one and only child, full of joy that her father is back. He's back from uh, weeks of fighting. He's come back home. He's victorious. She can't wait to see him. She rushes out the door. uh, And then we get that devastating scene because she has no idea what her father has promised God. And Jephthah is shocked, isn't he? He can't believe this has happened. He cries out. He rips his clothes in distress. And actually, if you read it, it seems like he blames his daughter, doesn't it? But he's made a vow to God. And one, he says, that he cannot break. His daughter goes with his permission for two months to weep for the life that she has missed out on. And we get another chilling verse in chapter 11, verse 39. And we don't get any great detail here. We don't get any narrative to read how it happens. And we know that Judges doesn't pull its punches when it comes to violence or to gore or to detail. But it's almost here as if it's too much. This is too disgusting. This is too sinful. This is too hard to write down. To make good on the vow that he has made, Jephthah takes his one and only child, his only daughter, and he sacrifices her as a burnt offering to God. Even with all the murder and violence and brutality of judges, this surely is one of the most sorriest points in all of the Bible, where a father, thinking he is doing a good thing in worshiping God, takes his daughter and sacrifices her to God. Somebody who is precious, somebody who is dear to God, somebody who God has made and loves, and Jephthah sacrifices her as a supposed act of worship. And in this act of worship, Jephthah shows that he really doesn't know God at all. He doesn't know the God he serves. Israel has rejected and turned from God so many times that they don't even know who he is, what he is like, and how he is to be worshipped. They've forsaken his laws so much that they worship him like any other pagan god that they served as if they're worshipping Baal or Ashtaroth, gods that did call for human sacrifices, something that the true God says time and time again that they should not do, that human sacrifice is murder, that human sacrifice is nowhere to worship the Lord. It's profane to him. That someone who does practice human sacrifice should be kicked out of God's people entirely. It's clear from Jephthah's vow that whatever or whoever comes out, but also by his response in verse 35, that human sacrifice was always a possibility. He doesn't lament the fact that it's a person he has to kill, but it's because that person happens to be his daughter. If he knew God's law, he would have known that human sacrifice is abominable. He would have known and he would have stopped. If he knew the law of the Lord, if he knew Leviticus, he would have known it's possible if you make a rash, silly, sinful vow, it's possible to get out of it. He didn't have to carry through with this act. There's also the sense that he's somehow trapped by this vow, isn't he? He's a little bit afraid because he's made this deal with God that if God gives him victory, he will uh, sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house to greet him. He's almost scared that if he doesn't sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house, God will reverse the result of that battle and the Ammonites will be 
a problem again. He's no concept of grace. He's no concept of the covenant that God has made with his people, that they are his people, and that he is long-suffering and loving towards them. Jephthah sadly doesn't know his God at all. He doesn't seek to know the God that he serves, this God that he does have some faith in. It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's a rather fuzzy picture of Jephthah. I've really struggled to know which way to take this guy. Is he a really bad guy? Or is he a really good guy with some flaws? Or is he a really bad guy with some good bits? Or is he a bit like me and you who get some things right and get some things wrong? Jephthah's problem is that he's allowed his pagan world to influence how he worships the Lord. He sees what other people are doing to worship their gods, and he says, well, that must be the right way to worship my God as well. We face the same danger in our lives. If we begin to build our picture of morality, of marriage, of sex, of the meaning of life, of of money, around what the world says and what the world believes. We might be a Christian, but if we've 20% worldly ideas and 80% Christian ideas, we can very easily fall into paganism. That's why Paul, writing in Romans in chapter 12, tells his readers to be renewed by, transformed by the renewing of their mind. That every thought, every idea, every belief that we hold about who we are, about who our God is, about how we relate to him should be transformed by the God that we serve. Sadly and very quickly, the story of Jephthah doesn't end there either. Chapter 12 recounts a brutal civil war between God's people. Jephthah hears from the Ephraimites and they're angry, get this, they're angry because they weren't asked to fight. I am more than happy to let anybody fight my battles for me. Uh, But they seem to be quite annoyed that they didn't get their taste uh, of the battlefield. Uh, And Jephthah goes and he slaughters 42,000 Ephraimites. 42,000. There's no delegation. There's no diplomacy. There's no waiting on a response. It's interesting. He seems that he's more willing to treat his enemy, the Ammonites, better than he's willing to treat his own brothers. And so we get 42,000 of God's people murdered by God's people. That's Jephthah. If it wasn't for Hebrews 11 and him being mentioned as somebody who had faith in God, along with Abraham and Noah, I would really struggle with this man. I would really struggle to know how to see him. But what do we do? What, what do we think of this story? Well, there's lots of things that we could pull out. We could think about the way we might be tempted to look down on somebody because of the way they were born or the situation they were born into somebody who might have a different life or a story to us. Uh, we might focus on being careful with our words, not making stupid or silly vows or promises. We might want to remind ourselves that God calls for us to, uh, for, to, us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, not dead ones. But let's zoom out. Let's go back to the big picture. What do Israel need most of all? They need a true king who can lead them in perfect and faithful worship of the Lord. Jephthah doesn't know how to worship God. 
He's obviously taught his daughter that it's okay to sacrifice people to God because she seemed fine to go away with, to go along with it. But they need people, a person, to lead them in perfect and faithful worship of the Lord. They need a king who, like Jephthah, had an unlikely beginning, was an outcast, raised up to save a people who rejected him, somebody who was rejected and despised, somebody who came to his own people and his own people did not know him. They need a king like, unlike Jephthah, unlike Jephthah's temporary victory over the Ammonites, they need a king who will bring about a permanent defeat of God's enemies forever. A king, again, unlike Jephthah, who will lead God's people into perfect worship, offering himself as an atoning sacrifice for sin once for all, a great high priest who mediates between sinful man and holy God. The original readers of Judges are most likely the people living in the day of David. And I'm sure that as they read this book, as it comes fresh off the press, as they get their hands on it, they're rejoicing. They're rejoicing that they do not live in the days of Judges and instead they have a good king like David. A good king like David who loves God, loves his law, who's built a temple to properly worship God and who has ushered in peace and a kingdom. But David is still not the man we should be looking for. Still not the perfect one. If this is what the original readers of judges are doing, praising God for David, then we should be on our knees tonight. We should be going, phew. Praise God for Jesus. Praise God for sending a truly perfect, great king who loves me more than I love myself. Praise God for giving up his one and only son who came here to die that I might live. Praise him for sending Jesus Because while I was worshipping Baal and the other false god of today, whatever they may be, that Jesus came and he ran after me and he pursued me and he brought me back for God. Praise God for Jesus, who is the dearest, nearest friend that I could have. Praise God for Jesus, who never tires of me, who never gets sick of me, who never has enough of me and my sin. The God-man who says he will never forsake me and that there's nothing that I can do to separate myself from his love. This evening, rejoice that Jesus is your king and not Jephthah, that he is your high priest who has led you in perfect worship of God, and so your future is eternally secure. A king like Jesus, who we could never know the full extent of how he loves us, what he thinks of us, what his grace is like. If we think we know Jesus, we've only got to the tip of the iceberg. Tonight, with the story in Jephthah on our minds, let's turn to Jesus. Let's look at our great Savior, people of God, and let let's our heart rejoice, because he is a good, good king. Let's pray. Lord, we do praise your name in this place tonight. We thank you for how we have already praised it, Lord, in in song. And we pray from what we have seen in your word tonight that we will praise it even more. We pray, Lord, for each of us here tonight that as we uh, think about what happens next after the service, as we think about the jobs 
we go back to as we think about the things that will happen this week. We just pray, God, that before we get there, that our vision of who the Lord Jesus is would be increased. That we would know even more what it means that he died for us, that he endured that cross for us, that he was raised for us, and that he sits in heaven this evening praying and interceding for us. We pray, Lord, that the story of Jephthah, the story of all the judges, Lord, would draw our hearts to Jesus, the good king who is on our side, who is for us. And if he is for us, what can stand against us? We pray, Lord, that we would go knowing you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.